Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Well, folks, this was it. The big week. Oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the case that urges the court to overrule Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But before we talk about that, GC, we have some other ground to cover. So let's get right to it. Were there any notable orders or opinions since our last show? Uh, one notable issue in the case of Arlene's Flowers versus Washington, the parties jointly dismissed that case. Arlene's Flowers involved a florist who refused on religious grounds to make an arrangement for a same-sex wedding and raised many of the issues left unresolved when the Supreme Court decided Masterpiece Cake Shop on narrow grounds. The dismissal follows the court's earlier refusal to take the case and came while a request to reconsider that decision was still pending. Since our last episode, there's been one notable grant, and we also have our first opinion of the term. First up, the grant. This was in the case of Berger versus North Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. The issue there is whether Republican members of the state's House and Senate can intervene to defend the state's voter ID law when the Democratic attorney general is already doing so, but not in the view of the Republican representatives well enough. The interveners are being represented by the fine folks over at Cooper and Kirk. For our first opinion of the term, GC, uh, it's not a particularly sexy case, uh, but it's an important one for the parties involved. It's Mississippi versus Tennessee, and it's an original jurisdiction case that involves a water dispute issue between Mississippi and Tennessee. The issue was whether the waters of the Middle Claiborne Aquifer, which is an underground water source, are subject to the judicial remedy of equitable apportionment. Under that doctrine, the court equitably divvies up shared water resources between states. The chief justice wrote for a unanimous court and held that the aquifer is subject to equitable apportionment and dismissed Mississippi's complaint without leave to amend. What's important about this case, GC, is it's the first time the court has applied the equitable apportionment doctrine to an underground aquifer as opposed to a surface water source. Turning to oral arguments, we had four this week, the first uh, in Becerra versus Empire Health, Uh, which considered whether the Department of Health and Human Services lawfully expanded who is entitled to certain Medicare benefits. The second, American Hospital Association versus Becerra, uh, involves another Medicare case that will decide whether uh, Health and Human Services exceeded its statutory authority by cutting the amount that it reimburses to hospitals for drugs that they dispense in outpatient facilities. The case includes a challenge to Chevron deference. That's a doctrine that says courts will generally defer to an agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute. That doctrine is controversial and has been weakened over time. Whether the court overrules it outright or continues the trend of weakening it into a decreasing relevance over time, we shall see. In fact, I think you've written a little bit about Chevron deference, haven't you, GC? That's correct. I have. All right. Well, everyone listening, go uh, go to GC's webpage, heritage.org, uh, <laughs> and look up what he's written. It's great stuff. Next up, we have Cummings v. Premier Rehab. The question presented in this case was whether compensatory damages available under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the other statutes that incorporate its remedies for victims of discrimination, such as the Rehab Act and the Affordable Care Act, uh, can also include compensation for emotional distress. Now, 
Dobbs, of course, is next up, but we're going to go a little bit out of order today, saving our discussion of the oral arguments until after our interview, because our very special guest today is going to set up the case and discuss its implications. We are joined today by Professor Robert P. George, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and the Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton. Professor George is, to quote Justice Kagan, one of the nation's most respected legal theorists. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on with you. To start, Professor, what does it mean to be a legal theorist? Legal theorists are concerned with the very concept of law, as opposed to the law of any particular jurisdiction, say, the law of the United States or the law of Italy or the law of Wisconsin, or the law of West Virginia, or the law of Indianapolis, or the law of Detroit. Legal theorists are asking questions about what makes law law. How is it that we understand that a particular social norm is a legal norm, as opposed to another sort of norm, a moral norm, a norm of politesse? And of course, legal theorists are very concerned with the question of the relationship of law to other normative systems in societies, like moral systems. Mm. Um, and legal theorists are concerned, very central to my own work, for example, uh, is the issue, uh, what makes law just or unjust? Uh, on what basis do we judge that law, when it does bind in conscience, binds in conscience? We all know that uh, law, the stipulation of a legal rule by a proper authority, can create obligation, moral obligation, where moral obligation otherwise would not have existed. If you're at an intersection and there's no traffic light or stop sign, you have a moral obligation to proceed carefully so that you don't injure anybody, cause an accident. Mm -hmm. But you don't have a strict moral obligation to stop. But once we do have a stoplight or a uh, stop sign uh, in place, then your moral obligation is not merely to proceed carefully through the intersection, but to stop. Other people are going to be relying on you to stop. They're picking up the signal that there's a stop sign there and that that means the driver ought to and can be expected to stop. So law can sometimes create moral obligation. So that's what legal theory is about. It's about the concept of law, the relationship of law to other normative systems in society, questions of what makes law just or unjust. I want to talk uh, with you about abortion, Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Dobbs, now pending at the Supreme Court. But I want to lay the groundwork for that discussion by introducing some of the ideas that serve as the foundation for your opinions on those cases. To start, you might be best known for your scholarship on natural law. What is natural law? Natural law is the body of reasons for action, including moral reasons for action that give us conclusive reasons to do things or to refrain from doing things. It's the moral law insofar as it can be understood by what philosophers call unaided reason. That is understood even apart from revelation. Now this isn't to deny the teachings of religions that God sometimes reveals himself and reveals himself with respect to our moral obligations and so forth, but natural law is what we can understand to be true, even apart from revelation, when it comes to our moral lives, when it comes to the moral domain. Hmm. Uh, so in the Christian tradition, for example, uh, we are taught by St. Paul in his letter to the Romans that 
uh, the Gentiles, even those who do not have the law of Moses. That's, that's what it means to be a Gentile. You're not Jewish, you don't have the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. Even the Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses, nevertheless, have some understanding of morality. Paul uh, says that it's a law written on their hearts. And because they're capable by reason of understanding fundamental moral truths, they can be held accountable. They're responsible, uh, even though they don't have divine uh, revelation. Now, the natural law tradition has been embraced by Christianity, uh, especially the Catholic Catholic tradition has been a kind of bearer of natural law mm-hmm. philosophy, but Christianity didn't invent it, nor does Christianity have a monopoly on it. The roots of natural law thinking are actually in uh, the uh, teachings of the philosophers of classical antiquity, both Greek and Roman, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, figures uh, like that. And we have uh, natural law thinking uh, not only in the Christian uh, tradition, but also in the Jewish tradition. One of the leading contemporary natural law theorists is the great scholar of uh, Jewish thought, Rabbi David Novak of the University of Toronto. And of course, there's also an Islamic tradition that's very much in line uh, with um, what uh, we ordinarily refer to as natural law. So um, it's really about what reason can know about how we ought to conduct our lives and organize our lives together. And how does natural law relate to the Constitution? Well, the framers and ratifiers of the Constitution, not only the original uh, Constitution before the amendments were added, but uh, those who were responsible for the amendments, uh, including the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments uh, enacted after the Civil War, uh, those framers and ratifiers firmly believed in in the natural law, the idea that there was a natural law, a moral law, and that a sound and just political system would translate the key principles of the moral law, of the natural law, into positive law for the governance of the polity. And so the Constitution is designed to embody the most fundamental principles of natural law so that justice and the common good can be achieved. Lincoln, um, in, in the Civil War and in the period leading up to the Civil War, is constantly invoking the idea that our founding is a founding on principles of natural law and natural rights, that uh, the law is not just arbitrary, it's not just a matter of our opinion, that the Constitution embodies certain principles of justice. And when we honor the Constitution, we honor those principles of justice. Does this understanding lead to any conclusions about um, Article 3's the judicial power? Well, uh, Article 3 of the Constitution, as you say, is concerned with the judicial power. It vests the judicial power of the United States in one Supreme Court and such inferior courts as Congress shall uh, from time to time ordain and establish. Uh, What this means is that we have an independent judiciary. The judiciary is the third branch of of government. It's not under the thumb of the executive, nor is it under the thumb of the legislative. It has uh, legislative branch. It has independence. Um, Now, the interpretation uh, of the Constitution and the laws is itself a distinct question, how the courts Mm -hmm. ought to interpret the Constitution, how they ought to interpret uh, the laws. There's a question about how much power to shape the laws in interpreting the laws 
the court ought to have or the courts ought to have, if any. Now, I've got a view about that, (laughs) but I think that the sound understanding of what the court's role is in statutory and constitutional interpretation is established by the positive law itself, beginning with the law of the Constitution, and is not settled by natural law. That means that different uh, systems, different uh, uh, political, legal, judicial systems can have reasonably different approaches on the question of how much discretion or lawmaking power or law-shaping power should be in the hands of judges. As I interpret our fundamental law, judges have comparatively little authority to shape or reshape the law. Judges should, to the extent possible, give effect to the law as understood by those responsible for making it law. For example, in the case of the Constitution, the ratifiers whose uh, judgment, whose action in ratifying a constitutional provision turned that provision into law. It's no longer just somebody's bright idea. Now it's law. So my own judgment of the basic sources of constitutional meaning are the text, the logical implications of the text, Mm -hmm. the structure of the Constitution and the institutions created under the Constitution, and the original public meaning of the Constitution when it were provisions of the Constitution, when it and those provisions were ratified, making it law. Hmm. With those concepts in mind, let's turn now to the law of abortion. Um, Starting with Roe and Casey, you've written that those cases ought to be overruled. Why is that? It's because those cases have absolutely no foundation in the text, logic, structure, or original understanding of the Constitution. The idea that they do is not only incorrect, it's laughable. (laughs) Even the efforts of Harry Blackman, writing for the majority in 1973, to find some sort of historical anchor for a right to abortion in the Constitution were, and I'm speaking here uh, plainly, uh, I want to be blunt about this, absurd. (laughs) They were absurd. There is nothing in the history of our Constitution and laws that would correspond to what Blackman claimed was an historic common law right or common law liberty of women, at least up to a certain point, say the point of uh, felt fetal movement uh, by by the mother, a right to abortion. So because uh, these cases lack any foundation in the text or logic or structure or historical understanding of the Constitution, they represent a violation of the Constitution themselves. Mm. They are anti-constitutional, unconstitutional decisions. They represent a lawless court overreaching, imposing on the nation the opinions of the judges with no constitutional warrant for doing so. Mm. You've written that uh, by imposing their will on the country, Roe and Casey, uh, the justices actually contributed to politicization of the court. How Can you unpack that argument for me? Yeah, sure. Uh, the judges in Roe and in Casey, responsible for the majority opinions in those cases, or in the case of the uh, Casey court, the opinion of um, uh, the three just justices who made all the difference, Uh, Those justices were not actually giving effect to the Constitution at all. They were simply enacting their own personal moral and political judgments. 
That's by definition a politicization of the law. The justices have no authority under our Constitution, no judge does, to simply uh, legislate from the bench his or her own will uh, into law. When a judge does that, a judge is not acting like a judge. The judge is acting like a politician, acting like a legislator. And that means that those rulings, as Lincoln would be the first to say and did say with respect to the Dred Scott decision of the 1850s, uh, that means that those rulings lack constitutional authority. Hmm. They're constitutionally illegitimate rulings. They're thoroughly politicized rulings. So what do you do when a court has gotten out of control, behaved lawlessly, uh, uh, allowed politics to intrude into the process of uh, judicial decision-making, the interpretation of the Constitution? You hope that a future court will undo that damage Mm -hmm. by reversing the earlier court and uh, going back into the business of being judges and not politicians. With Dobbs now pending, uh, it presents the court with several options with respect to Roe and Casey. It can preserve them as they are. It could preserve them but loosen them so that states can impose some restrictions on abortions, or it could overrule them. You've made the bold prediction that you think the court will overrule them. Why do you say that? Because there's no logical or plausible way to uphold the Mississippi law, which is in direct contradiction to Roe and Casey, uh, without overturning Roe and Casey. Uh, you, you don't have a situation here where there is available to the justices a way of upholding a law that they've signaled their intention to uphold, while at the same time being able to say with a straight face that they're doing so doesn't amount to a reversal of the earlier mm decisions. So I don't think the justices are going to want to completely embarrass themselves. They are not going to want to uh, look unprincipled and inconsistent. Mm. But here, the only way to avoid embarrassing themselves, to avoid appearing to be uh, inconsistent and unprincipled, is to reverse Roe and Casey. Some court watchers have said that they see in Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, who would, I suppose, be, uh, well, they could be swing votes in a way in, in Dobbs, uh, hints of an incrementalistic or consequentialist approach to judging. Do you agree? And if so, does that affect your prediction? No, I don't see it. I don't think there's any evidence that Justice Kavanaugh or Justice uh, uh, Barrett will behave in that way. If they do, I'll be very disappointed uh, in them. If the court, uh, let's say, takes some sort of attempt at an incrementalist approach, permits the people of it each state to impose some limitations on abortion sort of at the margins. Will the court, in fact, be cementing Rowan Casey and Stone in the future? It will be making it more difficult to overturn them uh, in the future, I think. Uh, Now is the most propitious moment uh, that we've had in a long time for the court to do the right thing and declare that Roe and Casey were mistakes, that they lack any basis in the Constitution and to get rid of them. If they don't do it now, we will have abortion case after abortion case after abortion case coming up to the Supreme Court, just as we have had for the past 48 mm-hmm. years since uh, Roe versus Wade. Resolving those cases in a principled way will be impossible because there's no principled, found, principled foundation for the putative right in the first place, and the court will continue to be mired uh, in uh, the abortion question. 
I would think that here prudence would align with principle, and it would be clear that the prudentially as well as prudentially correct as well as principled thing to do is just to overturn those cases, to admit that they were errors, they were terrible mistakes, uh, and and straighten out our constitutional law, stop them from continuing to do damage to our polity by undermining our constitutional principles. If the court does indeed overrule them, does that mean that uh, the abortion fight in the courts will be over? Yes, if it overrules them, uh, the most likely result would be, uh, and it will depend to some extent on exactly what their basis is for overruling them, but if they rule overrule them, the most uh, likely result is that the matters will return to the states and the states can develop their own law of abortion. It will be uh, more protective of unborn life in some states, less protective in other states. Uh, but that will be like the situation we had before Roe versus Wade was handed down in the first place. Before 1973, different states had different laws about abortion. There was not uniformity. Whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, it seemed to be what the Constitution uh, required. Mm. Now, uh, I'm not so sure that that's what the Constitution requires. As a matter of fact, Professor John Finnis and myself, Professor Finnis being the very eminent legal theorist mm-hmm. at Oxford University, uh, Professor John Finnis and myself have submitted an amicus curiae brief in the case, uh, the current case, the Dobbs case, in which we adduce evidence to show that the 14th Amendment by uh, in, uh, requiring that states uh, do not deny any person of uh, uh, equal protection of the laws, have, uh, in effect, cast a mantle of legal protection around the life of the child in the womb. Because if you look historically at what the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment understood persons to be, they understood the unborn as well as those already born to be persons. What that means is that constitutionally, the court should rule that states, if they protect anybody, any of us against deliberate homicide, need to at least give minimal protections to the unborn. And that would mean not having elective abortion. Now, that would not mean that uh, the courts would still be in the business of controlling uh, the law of abortion, because there are lots of questions uh, that necessarily arise and have to be dealt with about what can be done in cases or should be done, what's available to be done in cases where um, the uh, continuation of a pregnancy can cause grave harm or imperil the life uh, of a woman. Mm -hmm. Now, different people have different views about that. I have my own views uh, about that. But once we're outside of the domain of elective abortion and regulating Uh, what are sometimes referred to, I don't think this term is correct, but sometimes referred to as the question of therapeutic abortion. There it seems to me that constitutionally, I'm not speaking here morally, I'm speaking Mm -hmm. constitutionally, there you have room for different states to differ as to how they um, resolve those questions legally. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't expect the court to come down in the way that Professor Finnis and I are urging them to come down. It might be that one or two or perhaps even three justices in concurring opinions, um, uh, indicates that they'd be interested in hearing more or might even, might even agree with the argument that we make. 
But it's the argument that I think is constitutionally correct from an originalist Mm -hmm. point of view, that is, from the point of view of someone who believes that um, the Constitution should be interpreted to reflect the original public meaning at the time of ratification. But I do think the more likely outcome is that the issue will simply be returned to the legislative domain, that Mm -hmm. is to say, to the states. Now, at that point, you have the next question, which is, well... Could Congress step in and override state judgments about abortion? Could Congress enact some national laws, uh, uh, either protecting abortion or protecting the unborn against abortion? And that's a question that pertains to the, the issue that we in constitutional law refer to as federalism, the comparative authority of the states and the national government. For Congress to step in, the, the, the best argument uh, for it would be that under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, Congress has given a specific delegated power to enforce by appropriate legislation the guarantees of the first section of the 14th Amendment, and these include the guarantees of due process and equal protection. So it could be that the court would uphold federal intervention, whether that federal intervention is to make abortion laws more liberal than the states or to make them more protective of unborn life than the states or uh, more protective of unborn life than some states but more liberal than, uh, uh, than other states. Uh, we'll have to see on that. And, you know, I, I, again, I have opinions about that. Right. But it's a very complex matter that uh, would, would be a matter of entirely separate litigation. If your argument with John Finnis about the due process and equal protection clauses is correct, would that mean that federal legislation that Congress operating under the 14th Amendment would really only have the constitutional power to restrict abortion if it was to wade in from the federal level? Uh, well, um, it, would, it would not have the power to do anything more than prohibit elective abortions. That is where there is no issue about uh, a genuine threat of the pregnancy to the health or life of the mother. Mm. Where there is a genuine threat uh, to the mother, then it would seem to me, if Congress has a role here at all, its uh, role would be to wrestle with that question and come up with a determination that it thinks is correct, you know, doing justice to the competing interests that are at stake here. But remember, the vast, the overwhelming majority of abortions in this country since Roe versus Wade uh, are elective abortions. That mm-hmm. is, abortions where the health and life of the mother are not at stake. You know, blessedly, we live in an age of excellent uh, medical technology and medical care available to most people. Uh, and, and that means that, that in, in most pregnancies, even if there are some complications, we're not faced with a situation where either the mother or child will die, Hmm. or both. Uh, We're not faced with a situation uh, where the continuation of the pregnancy could result in long-term lasting damage to the health and well-being of of the mother. We're not in that situation. But it's still possible in rare cases for those kinds of threats to be presented. And there, even on the uh, view that Professor Finnis and I defend, there would be an appropriate role for legislation, which means either the state legislatures or, depending on your views about federalism, the Congress 
would appropriately step in to say what the rules are going to be. Professor, let's say that uh, in Dobbs, the court decides not to overrule Roe and Casey. What do you think are the broader implications for the conservative legal movement? I think they would be devastating to the conservative legal movement. Um, Roe and Casey are the very emblems of out-of-control, illicit judicial decision-making, lawless acts by courts operating under the pretext of interpreting the Constitution. They are the symbols of the usurpation of democratic political authority by unelected and electorally unaccountable justices. They are the textbook cases, the focal cases of legislating from the bench. For its entire existence, the modern modern conservative legal movement has had as its number one priority getting rid of that approach to, to, to judging, standing up against the judicial usurpation of democratic legislative authority, standing for the authentic, faithful interpretation of the Constitution, standing against legislating from the bench. And the conservative legal movement has worked hard and, and uh, inspired uh, ordinary people to assist in promoting the nomination of judges and the confirmation of judges, including Supreme Court justices, who would interpret the law faithfully and not stand for usurpations of democratic legislative authority, not legislate from the bench, get rid of cases like Roe and Casey that are textbook examples of of the judicial usurpation of democratic authority. If, despite these efforts, for decades, uh, and the great work of organizations like the Federalist Society and the promises of Republican presidents to appoint faithful constitutionalists to the court, people like Antonin Scalia mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, Clarence, Clarence Thomas, if despite all that, with a six-person majority of Republican-appointed comparatively recent judges those cases still don't get overturned. They get reaffirmed. People are going to say, we were duped. We were had. We were tricked. They wanted our votes. They promised that they would reform the courts. They promised that they would restore an authentic, faithful jurisprudence and appoint judges who would faithfully interpret the Constitution and not legislate from the bench, but they didn't mean it. Or if they did mean it, they couldn't accomplish it. A lot of people who vote for Republican presidents today are former Democrats and became Republicans because of cultural issues and central to their decision to vote Republican and then become Republican was the hope, the promise that the Republicans would appoint faithful constitutionalists who would not impose a progressive social agenda from the bench, that we would have fair democratic contests for resolving these big cultural issues such as abortion, marriage, pornography, all of these matters of cultural contestation. Mm-hmm. These people will be demoralized right. if the Supreme Court now, facing a straight-up opportunity to do the right thing, does the wrong thing. Well, Professor, this has been a wonderful discussion. I wanted to give you one uh, final 
open-ended question. If you have any other thoughts uh, about uh, Roe, Casey, Dobbs that you wanted to share. I'll just remind uh, those who are, like myself, uh, pro-life, that given what I've predicted, that is that the court will overturn Roe and Casey, uh, but that it will do so in a way that returns the issue to the legislative domain. I want to remind my pro-life friends and all your pro-life listeners that that means we then have the hard work in front of us of actually making laws Mm -hmm. that uh, protect the child in the womb. There are going to be people on the other side working night and day with enormous resources, uh, with power in the journalistic establishment, the educational establishment, the professional associations, the philanthropies, the corporations. They're going to be working day and night to basically restore Roe versus Wade by legislation. If we who believe in the sanctity of all human life, who believe in the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of every member of the human family, beginning with the child in the womb, do not contest the issue with equal vigor, equal force, uh, equal uh, determination to win, then we will have gained nothing by the overturning Mm. of Roe and Casey. The only way we can win is to get back into the domain of politics, into the field of politics, having finally won the victory we've sought for 40-something years, in law to get into the domain of politics and provide the protections for our unborn brothers and sisters that they deserve. Well, Professor George, this has been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And now, with that very helpful discussion of the case from Professor George, let's turn to oral argument. Now, we could talk about the Dobbs oral arguments for hours. But Are you ready to do that, GC? I'm ready. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nor, I think, does our audience want to hear Dobbs for hours. But I'm going to keep it short by focusing on— Famous last words. <laughs> true enough. I'll focus on themes from each of the justices' questions, starting with the chief. The chief justice seemed to be trying to find some middle ground by which he could uphold Mississippi's law without overruling Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, perhaps by removing the viability line that Casey drew. But nobody on either side wanted that. And as many law professors have explained, no other standard would be any more defensible or any more workable. Justice Thomas is the one justice for whom we have a previous statement on the record about this very question. He was on the court during Casey, uh, and he joined Chief Justice Rehnquist's dissent, which called Roe wrongly decided and argued that it should be overruled. Justice Kavanaugh noted that the Constitution is silent on abortion and judges must be neutral. So he asked several times, uh, and I'll paraphrase, isn't overruling Roe and Casey the neutral thing to do? Uh, so that abortion policy is left for the people of the states to decide. For his part, Justice Alito uh, pushed the law's challengers hard on stare decisis. In one telling exchange, U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger suggested that if a decision was clearly wrong, that alone is not enough to overrule it, to which Justice Alito retorted, so if the court had immediately reconsidered Plessy versus Ferguson, that's the case upholding racial segregation as separate but equal, It couldn't have overruled it right away. That question had the Solicitor General grasping not very effectively for a way out. GC, I thought that was a very effective line of questioning by Justice Alito. And I also put a plug in. Uh, Tom Jipping and I, uh, one of our Heritage colleagues here, 
We wrote a paper uh, earlier this year called Stereo Decisis 101, kind of explaining what it is, how it's mm-hmm. typically been applied. Uh, so if anyone wants more information about that, you know, please feel free and uh, give it a look. Yeah, it's a good paper. You can also find that on Zach's website. Heritage.org. Thank you, GC. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, for his part, Justice Gorsuch was relatively quiet during the oral arguments, but he had some of the most effective questions of the day, successfully getting the law's challengers to admit that no middle ground is going to work. It's all or nothing. Justice Barrett, too, was relatively quiet, but she raised a very interesting point about safe haven laws. Those are laws that allow parents to give up their newborn babies at safe places. She asked if those laws negated abortion advocates' claims that women rely on abortion to avoid the responsibilities of parenthood. Justices Breyer and Kagan raised concerns about stare decisis. Here we go again. Always. And whether reversing Roe and Casey would appear to be motivated by political concerns rather than law. It was noteworthy, however, that neither tried to defend Roe or Casey as a matter of law. Now, Justice Sotomayor, I say for last, her questioning was noteworthy because what we saw was a judge who I think charitably lost the ability to separate her personal views from the law. She sounded a lot less like a judge than like a Planned Parenthood spokesperson making policy arguments in favor of abortion. And they were extreme arguments. For example, in response to the observation that the unborn recoil at pain, she said, well, so do people who are brain dead. In another, she seemed to suggest that only religious views could lead someone to oppose abortion, which is incorrect. There are plenty of secular arguments against it, too. For instance, Professor Christopher Kazor's book, The Ethics of Abortion. As always, I am reluctant to read the tea leaves, but the consensus among court watchers seems to be that it is plausible, more plausible post-argument than than most people thought before arguments, that the court will overrule Roe and Casey. You know, GC, one of the interesting things I think to watch will be to see what the chief justice does, uh, whether he in fact tries to cut a middle ground, Mm -hmm. and if so, uh, whether he will join the other justices and try to take the opinion for himself uh, to maybe write it more narrowly uh, than it otherwise would have been. Well, GC, uh, with all the attention on the Dobbs case this week, I thought for this week's trivia, uh, we could dig in a little bit into the background of the Roe and Casey decisions and some of the facts surrounding it. Sure. All right. Well, I read a recent Washington Post article that talked about some of the facts behind the Roe case, the background, the historical context. And so I wanted to reference some of that in our, our trivia today. Uh, well, I, I think I might then do pretty well because I, I think I read the Washington Post article. Right. And just to be clear, this is not an endorsement of the Washington Post <laughs> uh, owned by Jeff Bezos. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is good to keep up with, uh, with current events here. So in that article, uh, it credits a Supreme Court law clerk with first proposing uh, what is, in my view, the dubious viability standard uh, as the, the standard that justices should use to regulate abortions. Uh, so here's my question. Who was that law clerk? That would be, I think, Larry Hammond. Oh, you're going to kill it today on the TVGC. <laughs> I can tell. This isn't fair. <laughs> Not fair at all. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, he recently passed away in March of 2020. Uh, but before he passed away, he talked about his role as the first individual uh, to propose the viability standard to the justices. Now, do you remember who he clerked for? I do. That would be Justice Powell. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, when I first read the article, I thought it might be Justice Blackman because Justice Blackman uh, wrote Roe v. Wade, uh, but it wasn't. It was actually he clerked for Justice Powell and it was Justice Powell who persuaded Justice Blackman uh, to go along with the viability standard. 
speaking of Justice Blackman, GC, uh, I learned recently that he did not originally want to be a lawyer. Uh, do you know what his first career choice would have been? Uh, that's interesting. No, I do not. Yeah, so he actually wanted to be a doctor, uh, which makes sense in some ways. You know, he wrote Roe, and he actually spent most of his career as a lawyer representing doctors at the Mayo Clinic. And some scholars have even suggested that it was his fondness for doctors and the medical profession that influenced his decision to vote to create the right to abortion. Hmm. Now, GC, here's something I found interesting. Uh, Justice Powell hadn't been confirmed when Roe v. Wade was first argued in December of 1971. But as we just talked about, he was able to ultimately participate in the decision, influence Justice Blackman. But do you know how he was able to do that, uh, given that justices who aren't confirmed uh, typically don't participate in cases uh, that were heard before they were their confirmation? I think the chief justice held the case over to the next term. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was Chief Justice Warren Burger. Uh, he was worried that such a consequential decision would be issued by a partial seven-member court. Uh, neither Justice Powell nor Justice Rehnquist had been confirmed when the court first heard arguments in Roe v. Wade and his companion case. Uh, so Chief Justice Burger wanted to reset it for argument so that the full court uh, could participate. Now, I will say in the Washington Post article, it did say this was a controversial decision. Uh, Justice uh, William O. Douglas was not happy about this, and it was later discovered in his uh, private papers that he had, in fact, uh, planned to raise this uh, dissatisfaction, uh, but in fact never did hmm. uh, publicly. I've got a bonus question for you, GC. Hit me with it. Do you know what the nickname uh, that was given to Chief Justice Berger and Justice Blackman? I do, actually. Well, what is it? Uh, they were called the Minnesota Twins. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I thought I was going to get you with this last one, GC. Uh, <laughs> Not but, today, Zach. But you uh, you killed it on trivia today. Uh, do me a favor, GC. Uh, before no. you set up, well, <laughs> listen. Don't give me your standard answer. Uh, before you uh, settle on a topic for trivia next week, uh, let me know what you're using for source material, and I'll try to study up a little bit uh, too. Uh, you know, you I need all the help so I can lucky. get. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.